All right, if you would please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to start this morning. Uh, I'm going to let you know, I, I'm, I'm a lover of school. Like, I've always, I always loved school. I actually uh, enjoyed first day of school. I enjoyed getting the new syllabus because I love learning new things. Uh, that said, students, sorry, but I'm glad I'm not school, in school any longer. Because <laughs> um, I like studying now what I want to study and nobody grades me for it. At least, unless, uh, you know, you're going to like give me a grade on my sermon. I don't get grades anymore, which is nice. So I, I still get to learn, but I don't get grades. But I did really genuinely love school. Uh, except for the worst part of school, in my opinion, was always group projects. Anybody? Amen? Yeah. Group projects. Horrible. Why? Because there's always a slacker or two or three in your group and you have to carry the other people, right? Because none of us were ever the slacker who had to be carried, right? But there's always somebody who's just, man, you, you got you to gotta do their work for them. You got to coach them, right? They don't turn things in on time. Uh, I always hated that part of school. And in fact, I have a really vivid memory because my, my absolute worst group project experience was while I was at seminary with two of my friends, close friends from Texas A&M. They were at seminary at the same time. The three of us were put into a group together in anthropology class, and I worked really hard on my part of the project, and they did, like, terrible work. I mean, just, they, they were complete slackers. They, and by the time I realized that they weren't doing their work, there wasn't time for me to, to correct the stuff that they were doing, right? So we turn in this project, and as a whole, it, it, was a, it was a lengthy paper. It was really not very good work as a whole, and sure enough, uh, the grade we got back as a group was, it was the worst grade that I, I'd gotten in seminary. I was like super hacked. I, mean, I was really, really hacked, right? We're sitting in class. We get the paper back. They were sitting next to me. I mean, I'm just steaming. I'm stewing, right? And, and they knew, right? That you could just, I wanted them to feel the shame and the guilt, right? So you just, they're feeling guilty. They're feeling embarrassed. And I said, you know, you should, you should. I mean, look, all the comments that are good, that's my stuff. And the comments are bad. That's your stuff. You should go talk to him. And they're like, okay. I mean, I, I poured it on thick enough that they, they, so they went, right? They went to the prof, they went to his office and um, they said, look, Brian worked really hard. Look, here are your good comments. That's his section. And you know, where you really marked it up. This is, we just didn't do our work well. And and he goes, yeah, I, I see that. Okay, yeah, I see that really clearly. So like, well, so, you know, would you, would you give him a better grade? And he goes, no. Group project. Ah, like they just, even to this day, right? Sometimes I'll see him again and I'll bring it up. <laughs> Man, they just totally dogged me. Group projects. Now, here's the, here's the hard thing I've had to learn. Eventually, all of life becomes a group project. Okay. I spend almost all of my time at home or at work. Home, group project. Work, group project, right? All of life eventually becomes a group project. I've had to learn that hard lesson. And I've also learned a beautiful lesson. All of life is a group project. Right? The best of life is when we do it together. We were designed for relationships. We were made for rich and full and satisfying relationships. Interestingly, uh, this last week I, I perused the Amazon uh, bestseller list and six of the top 15 books currently are about relationships. Uh, let me remind you of a few of the titles if you haven't looked at this recently. Malcolm Gladwell's new book, Talking to Strangers. I just read that. Fascinating book about our relationships and how we interact with strangers. Uh, Boundaries by Henry Cloud, which is a book about how to keep people out of your business, right? (laughs) It's more than that, but anyway. Um, One that I'd never heard of, Awkward 
the science of why we're socially awkward and why that's awesome. I was intrigued by that title. How to Win Friends and Influence People, which has been on the bestseller list since the 1930s. Isn't that crazy? And then another perennial favorite, The Five Love Languages, been on the bestseller list since 2009. We were made for relationships. We long for relationships. When you say to yourself, man, I want uh, deeper friendships. I want my marriage to be better. I want a richer relationship with my kids. That's natural. That's who we are. In fact, I have noticed that most of the questions that I'm asked are not theological, theological per se. They're relational. I do get asked biblical and theological questions like, what does this verse mean? Or, you know, solve sovereignty and human responsibility. Can you fix that for me? I mean, I get asked those questions, but most of my questions are relational. So, how can I get a boyfriend? How can I keep a girlfriend? How can I get rid of a boyfriend? (laughs) How can I fix him? How can I fix my spouse? Something wrong with my spouse. How can I fix my spouse? My kids, why are my kids always disrespectful? I don't have a good relationship with them. How can I, how can I build better relationships uh, with my boss or with my coworkers? How do I build deep relationships inside the body of Christ? How, how can I actually have a, a genuine relationship with an unseen God? That's a theological question. It's also a deeply relational question. Right? We were made for relationships. We long for them. We need them. But if we're honest, none of our relationships are perfect, right? In fact, a lot of our relationships are, are deeply broken. And so what we want is we want to see healing. And we want to see wholeness in those relationships. That's what we're going to talk about uh, for the next eight weeks. Blake and Matt and I are just going to unpack the various spheres in which God has given us relationships, whether that's in the church or in the home or at work or in your neighborhood. How do we start great relationships? How do we build them? How do we maintain them? How do we bring healing into those relationships? This morning what I want to do is I want to kind of lay, in a sense, a a biblical theology for relationships. So if you're not there already, turn to Genesis chapter 2. And my first point in this biblical theology is very simple. It's this. We were made for relationships. We were made for relationships. Look at Genesis chapter 2 and read with me beginning in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also is in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now skip down to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So if you look at Genesis 1 through 2, here's the progression. God creates day one. He looks out at what he's created and says, it is good. Day two, it is good. Day three, it is good. Day four, five, six, it is good. But then at the very pinnacle of his creation, he makes man and he looks at man and he says, this is not good. 
It's the first time God has declared that something is not good because he's made all the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky, brought them all in front of Adam. He names all of them, but as he's naming every, each and every single one, he realizes there is not a, a helper that's suitable for him. That is one that's corresponding to him. Adam doesn't have an equal. So Adam's problem, note this, Adam's problem is not that he's single. Adam's problem is not that he's unmarried. And the reason I, I know that is because Jesus never married and Jesus lacked nothing relationally. The problem is that Adam is alone. Adam is alone. Adam is isolated. And so God looks at this and he's living alone. He's laboring alone. He has no relationships with an equal. And God says, this is not good. Why? Because we are incomplete without others. Now, some of you may say to yourself, well, that's not me because I'm, I'm an introvert. I don't, really, I don't really need people, right? I just kind of slide into the back of church, and then while Brian's praying, I slip out again, and I don't really need people. I don't really talk to people. I'm not talking about introversion and, and extroversion. Um, in fact, I remember the first time that I took one of those interest surveys that kind of points you in the direction vocationally. Mine came up, forest ranger. <laughs> I get introverts. I get that. Right? Just me and the animals. I'm good. No people messing with me, harassing me. I'm not talking about that. Some of us need a little more time to recharge away from people than others, but all of us need people. And I would argue introverts need people even more so because we're more likely to get isolated. And if we're, we're, we're isolated, you know, it hurts us. It damages us. It's a fascinating study that was reported on in 2018 in Scientific American. They were, a study had been done of prisoners who had been in solitary confinement. And they reported this. Solitary confinement greatly increases the risk of self-harm, suicide, depression, memory loss, cognitive decline, and loss of brain function. One of the scientists who was interviewed, a professor from the University of Michigan, said this. Social deprivation is bad for brain structure and function. Loneliness in itself is extremely damaging. So you see what they're saying it affects you emotionally, psychologically. It actually also affects you physiologically. It changes the physiology of your brain. We were not made to be alone. We weren't made to be alone. Why was, why was Cain's curse such so devastating? Well, because he had to live separate. right? He was, he was banished. Why do the hermits see visions? Because they go crazy. They go crazy being completely and utterly alone and isolated. Remember Home Alone? Right? Kevin's super excited. We feel like, oh, okay, everybody left, but hey, this is kind of fun. I can do whatever I want, sleep in, eat all this food, order pizza, do whatever I want. And then he realizes, no, I'm, I'm really alone. And then he feels lonely, he feels sad, and then he feels scared because it's not good to be isolated and alone. Right? It actually affects us and damages us. Why? Because we're made for relationships. So again, when you say, I want deeper friendships. I want my marriage to be healthier. I want to be reconciled with my kids or with my parents. That's because you are made in the image of God. Right? You were made for relationships because you were made in the image of God. And God is, by nature, a relational God. God's fundamental nature is that he is relational. John chapter 17, verse 24 Jesus is speaking with his father, God, and he says this. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, 
that they be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. I, I think this is absolutely one of the most critical concepts to understand in all of Scripture, and it's this. God was never alone. God was never alone. For all of eternity, God was in relationship. For all of eternity, God was expressing and experiencing love because God is a Trinitarian God. So, you realize Christianity is the only Trinitarian religion. There are other religions that have some resurrection stories, but Christianity is the only Trinitarian religion, which Trinity, I, I, I get it. It's, it's impossible to completely understand, but we can describe it. And we describe it like this. There's just one God. God is one. But God is one existing in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, distinct persons. For all of eternity, God was in relationship, and the nature of that relationship was love. Father loving the Son, Son loving the Father, Spirit loving the Father, Father loving the Spirit, Spirit loving the Son, Son loving the Spirit, all loving one another. God always existed in relationship. So God didn't have to discover what it meant to love. Now imagine if God was just one person. God's just one person. Then God couldn't in his nature know love. Right? He would have had to create in order to first experience love. He wouldn't know what it meant to be in relationship. So God would have to discover something. God would have to grow. God would have to change. God's nature in that respect then would be a changing nature, an evolving nature, a growing nature. Consider, for example, uh, Allah in Islam. Uh, the fundamental nature of uh, Allah, not surprisingly, is not love. It is sovereignty. Because Allah couldn't know love until he discovered love after having created. But our God has always known love. So, 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. John, the beloved disciple, summarizes it like this. God is love. This is essential to who God is. So if we're made in the image of God, it's natural for us also to need and want and desire relationships because God is love. Now, what that means is God didn't create because he was lonely. He already had uh, better relationships, in a sense, than he would get with his creatures. God didn't create because there was some some lack or some deficit in him. God created, in a sense, because of the overflow of his love. God created because of the overflow of the love. And what, what that means for us as creatures made in his image is that the relationships inside of the Trinity serve as the foundation and the model for all of our human relationships. Got that? The relationships within the Trinity serve as the, serve as the foundation and the model for all of our human relationships. So what was it like inside the Trinity? The Father honors the Son, and the Son submits to the Father. And the Spirit serves the Father and serves the Son. And there is no jealousy, and there's no fear, and there's no anger, and there's no hatred. There is perfect harmony within the relationships of Father, Son, and Spirit. God is a relational God, and those relationships define the way that our relationships should work. So, turn with me one chapter back to Genesis chapter 1. In verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
And let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every moving thing that moves on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, what does Moses record? He says, not in the beginning, God said, let me make a guy in my image. That's not what God said. God said, let us make man, male and female, mankind, in our image. Or in other words, creation was a group project. Creation was a group project. Father, Son, and Spirit said, let us make mankind, male and female, in our image. So the image of God could not be fully reflected on earth until there was two. And two who were different than one another. Two distinct persons, but equal. Adam needed an equal, but he needed an equal who was different from him. So that his relationship with this other could reflect the relationships between father and son and spirit. So what does it mean to be made then in the image of God? 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. John writes, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. The, the concept of the image of God is, is enormously complex. And I can't say that I understand it fully, but it does mean this. It means first and foremost that, that we are the only creatures God made that have a capacity for a deep and personal and intimate relationship with God. The, the cows and the birds and the fish cannot have the kind of relationship that we have with God. We're made in his image so we can have a deep and personal relationship with God. So much so, John says, let me help you understand how great the love of, of God is toward us. He says, I want you to call me father. And you're going to be my children. We're, we're going to be family. In fact, uh, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that the spirit is constantly crying out to your spirit. And he's saying, when you talk to God, what I want you to do is I want you to say, Daddy, I want you to begin to experience that level of intimacy. Call him Daddy. Now, who's the only other person who ever called God Daddy? Jesus, right? Abba, Daddy, Father. And what the Spirit and the Son and the Father want for you and me is that we would be caught up into that relationship, that we would experience the intimacy that Father and Son and Spirit had for all of eternity and will have for all of eternity. Is that not absolutely amazing? Right? That's what it means to be made in the image of God. That, that you can begin to experience it now, and for all of eternity you will experience the perfection of relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. Right? That's the first part of what it means, means to be made in the image of God. Second part is this. And I know I'm oversimplifying the concept of the image of God, but this is, this is the essence of it. Chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We love because he first loved us, right? So the first aspect of being made in the image of God is that we can have this deep and rich and satisfying and fulfilling relationship with God. And then we can turn around and we can reflect and represent that kind of love to the people around us who are also equally made in the image of God. Okay. Deep and satisfying relationship with the eternal creator who says, call me Abba, Father, Daddy. And then we turn around and we reflect the very nature of God who is a relational God in the way that we love one another. So, That's really important theology. 
And it's rooted in the Trinitarian nature of God. You were made for relationships because you were made in the image of God, and God is a relational God. That's awesome. That's amazing, right? Uh, except for one thing. All of your relationships are broken at some level. Right? You were made for this, but none of them really work out perfectly. And some don't seem to work out at all. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Remember at the first part of Genesis chapter 3, serpent sneaks into the garden, tempts Eve, she takes the fruit against the will of God, hands it to Adam, he eats, and then the consequences immediately follow. Verse 7. So then, the, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loin coverings. All of a sudden, they didn't feel safe. They didn't feel safe with one another. And so a barrier began to be, to, to be erected in between them, right? There's, there's distance. There's alienation. Uh, this wonderful and beautiful relationship between Adam and Eve, now they're beginning to, to, to fear one another and protect themselves from one another. Verse 8, Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Every other day, God had begun to walk in the garden. They'd hear him, and they would run to him, and they would be with him, and now they're, they're hiding. So there's, there's this distance that's beginning to separate between Adam and Eve, and a distance between Adam and Eve and God. There's an alienation in relationships. The so relationships are beginning to crumble. Verse 9, it says, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Did God really not know where Adam was? <laughs> no, of course he knew where he was. Geographically, this is relational distance, right? Have you ever been sitting with someone and you're talking and you go, Hey, where'd you go? Right? I know where you're sitting right there, but you're not here. What, what happened? There's, a, there's this relational disconnect and distance. And God says, Where are you? He may have been looking at Adam when he said, Where are you? Where'd you go? Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. And he'd never been afraid before. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And here it is. Here it is. So the man said, Thank you, God, for this incredible companion that you've given me. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You took her from my side. I had no companion and I was isolated and I was alone and I was living alone. I was laboring alone and you made one who was corresponding to me. Thank you for her. He says, the woman, man, God, I I don't know what you were thinking. (laughs) The woman that you, that you gave to me, she just tossed the fruit my way and it came in my mouth and a bike. God. Eve's under the bus, right? Just like that. Verse 13, then the Lord said to the woman who no longer has anyone to protect her, right? She's, she's isolated. She's alone. She's afraid. The Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then all of the consequences of that choice begin to fall out. Adam and Eve, there's just going to be increasing friction and alienation, conflict, and there's going to be pain in childbirth. And Adam, you know, you should be really fulfilled by the labor of your hands in the field. Instead, you're just going to stick your hands in the dirt, and it's going to bring up thorns and thistles. And in fact, there's going to be increasing distance between you, Adam, and Eve, and me. You've you got to get out. you got to get out. 
And he removes them from the garden. He removes them from his presence. Right? And their relationships uh, degenerate. What they were made for, they can no longer fully experience because of the fall, because of sin. Titus, uh, Paul describes it to Titus like this. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and in be hateful, hating one another. Genesis chapter 3. What follows Genesis chapter 3? Not a trick question, Genesis chapter 4, right? Genesis 4 follows, and we have the first sin recorded after the fall, which was little white lie. No, it was brother kills brother, right? The, in a sense, the, the pinnacle of relational sin, brother not protecting brother, brother kills brother. Do you know actually that uh, most homicides, most violent crimes are committed by people that the victim knows, who, who can hurt you worse? A friend or a stranger? Always a friend, right? Somebody drives by you and they, uh, uh, honk, uh, you know, expletive and uh, gesture, right? You go, jerk, and you drive on. You forget about it, right? Ah, uh, not a big deal. A friend or a roommate or a spouse or a child says an unkind word or a critical word or doesn't tell the truth. It might take weeks or months or years to get over, right? Cuts us so much more deeply because that's a relationship that really matters to us because we were made for relationship, but our relationships are deeply, deeply broken. James chapter four, James writes, what is the source? Where does all this come from? What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James says, you know what your biggest problem is? You. you. Your biggest problem is not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not your neighbors. Your biggest problem is you because you're completely and utterly self-centered. So your, your, your nature that you're born into the world with is a nature to take, not to give. Right? That's fallen human nature. Why is family so hard? Family so hard because you have two people who are born in the world completely self-centered in a confined space. <laughs> so what's the solution? Build a bigger house, right? That's the solution. You build a bigger house so you can kind of get to neutral corners periodically. The problem is even in neutral corners, periodically, uh, mom and dad's paths cross and intersect and then out pop these miniature versions of their selfish selves, right? And so now you've got, you know, little mom and little dad. They're smaller versions, but they're more, you know, selfish and they're less mature. And then there's three selfish people and then there's four and then there's five and six. You're like, oh my gosh, we can't even build a big enough house to get away from one another. It's hard because at the root, we want what we want when we want it. We are about self. We're about self. And, and the result of being about myself is that I can't have great relationships because the great relationships are built on love, which it means I'm about you and not about me. Right? So, What's the solution? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus came to reconcile. You were made for relationships. Because you're made in the image of God. And God is a relational God. But all of your relationships are broken at some level. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to reconcile. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
in verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now all of these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, what Paul is saying in this context is that salvation is, is, is it's a social tra- transaction. It's reconciliation. We are born separated from God or alienated from God. There's this enormous chasm between us, which is filled with our sin. And not just our discrete acts of sin, but this fundamental nature we have that, that is just for us. We're just for ourselves. And so we're takers, not givers. And Paul says, you know what God did is he took all of that and he poured all of that out upon Jesus Christ. He made him sin who'd never experienced sin. So that having paid for sin, he could give us the gift of righteousness in place of our debt of sin. You can't remove the chasm. We need to understand that. We can't. We can't do anything about that. We might clean up our act and, and, and kind of remove a few of our discrete habits of sin. But this fundamental nature that is for ourselves and against God and others, we, we can't fix. And so what salvation is, is God removing that debt, removing the chasm, bridging it through the payment of Christ, and then calling out to you and saying, all that I need you to do is just say thank you. I literally, I need you to stop trying to fix the chasm because you can't. It's far too deep. It's far too dark. It's far too dangerous. You cannot. But I've already done it in Christ. So I want you to reach out and say, God, thank you. I believe that Jesus has paid the price for my sin. The moment you do that, you're reconciled to God. Right? God's not reconciled to you because God hasn't moved. Jesus reconciles you to God. Right? And he gives you the righteousness of Christ. Now you're in right relationship with God. Now being in right relationship with God, having experienced the love of God through Christ, he says, now I want you to be a reconciler of people to God. So notice again what he says here, chapter 5. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors. We represent Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. And you should put this in quotes. Paul says, we go out into the streets. We go out into the marketplaces. We go into people's homes and we say, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, because we're made in the image of God and we've experienced the love of God, we can now be reconcilers of people to God. That is fundamental ministry of evangelism. We help people find their way back to God. We reconcile people to God. We also, because we've experienced the love of God, we reconcile people back to us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, 
forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Notice what Paul says. Why do we extend forgiveness to other people? Because they ask for it or because they deserve it? No, because you've received it. Right? The only reason that you extend forgiveness to other people is because you have been forgiven yourself by Jesus Christ. And Paul says, therefore, when you begin to extend forgiveness and you're not holding people's debts against them, you become imitators of your father, God, because this is what God does to us, right? This is the, this is the nature of God. God, the creator and sovereign of the universe, is not a God who takes. He's a God who gives and a God who forgives. So when we give and when we forgive, which is love, we demonstrate the character and the nature of God on earth, right? That's part of the image of God. Being in relationship with God, but also being in relationship with other people, reconciling them to God, but reconciling them to us as well, right? We become reconcilers. We also help people reconcile to one another. Right? That's the power of the gospel. I, you, you can legislate to, to protect people from harming each other, but you cannot create reconciliation through legislation. You realize that? You can't. We need legislation to protect people so they don't harm each other. But genuine reconciliation only happens through the gospel of Jesus. Because when, when I understand the gospel of Jesus, I understand that you are equally made in the image of God as I am. You're made in the image of God and Christ died for you. So I can look out at each and every person, whether they're kind to me or whether they harm me. And I can say, in the image of God for whom Christ died. And that's the only basis for genuine biblical reconciliation. It's through the gospel, right? So we reconcile people to God. They're transformed. We reconcile people to us through forgiveness. We reconcile people to one another. That's a reflection of the image of God. So turn with me one final verse I want you to look at. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 36. It says, one of the Pharisees, he was a lawyer. He asked Jesus a question. He's testing Jesus. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. He said, teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? You are invited into a relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit, a relationship that existed for all of eternity, a relationship that is perfect, and it's a relationship defined by love. So, the first and great commandment, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you say, what? But the second is like it, because the great commandment actually comes in two parts. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments actually rest all that God had revealed to people to that point in time. I can just put it together for you in two sentences. You're made in the image of God. Therefore, you can have a rich and full and satisfying relationship with the creator of the universe. You can call him Abba, Father, Daddy. And you can reflect the very nature of God in your relationships when you love your neighbor as yourself. You were made for this. You were designed for this. And once you've believed in Jesus Christ and you've experienced the love of God for you, you can turn around and you can give it to others. So, how do we apply this? I'm going to give you a really simple application. Right? First, uh, first part of this sermon series, it's just January. I'm going to give you a really simple, simple application. Uh, I'm going to tell you also that it's going to be really, really hard for some of you. Okay, but simple, but 
exceptionally hard. It's this. I want you to think about just one relationship. That's simple, right? But the one relationship I want you to think about is the one that uh, maybe is most broken. What one relationship in your life most needs God's hope, healing, and supernatural power this year? That's the hard part. And what we're going to do in just a moment is I want you to take some time and I want you just to pray. I want you to identify that person in your mind. I want you to pray. I want you to pray, God, give me wisdom. Give me courage. What would it mean for me to, because I've been uh, loved so much by you and I've experienced your forgiveness, to, to move into that relationship? And maybe you need to forgive. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness. Maybe you need to initiate and you've been ignoring. I don't know what it is, but I want you to think about that one relationship. It's just things are not where they could be. And I want you to dream and hope and pray and say, God, give me wisdom to move into this, this space that, that could be really hard. We begin to talk about all of our relational spheres. Pick just one. But God, what would it look like for you to, in your supernatural power just through the gospel and me having the courage to step in and you bring healing and hope and change? All right, so let's take just a moment. I want you to bow your heads. I want you to think of that person and begin to pray. God, give me wisdom. And give me courage, and then I'll close this in prayer in just a moment. Father, I thank you that you've made us in your image. I thank you that you have made us to, to long for and to need and be, be fulfilled by deep and abiding relationships in our lives. And I pray, Father, for each person sitting here that you would provide those. I pray that you would give us wisdom to know how to, how to seek those out, how to grow them and maintain them or, or how to heal them by the power of your spirit. I pray, Father, for each person who may be uh, thinking of a really difficult relationship right now that you would give uh, courage and you'd give wisdom and you'd give hope. I pray, Father, that we would see some really beautiful and dramatic and supernatural transformations of relationships uh, through this semester. As we trust you and we trust the power of your gospel in our relationships, thank you, Father, for reaching out to us through Jesus Christ and reconciling us to yourself, we, we would have no hope apart from Jesus. And we thank you for that. It's in Christ's powerful, precious name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. I look forward to hearing some stories of some relationships being reconciled and healed. See you next week.